no matter your eschatological perspectives, you will all fly away someday. (laughs) You all sound real good. That's good stuff. I enjoy the singing and those good old hymns. Warm your soul on a cold February day. Well, we're going to be looking at God's Word again today from the book of Colossians. We're continuing to unpackage what Paul has for us in this wonderful Christ-centered epistle. And Paul here wants to make certain that the error of the false teacher that has come into the midst of this body of believers is corrected and that they get back on course. And we've been talking about that and We'll continue to do that today as we, can, as we unpackage the significance and meaning of verse 8, in particular, perhaps moving into verse 9, although I doubt it. <laughs> um, it's good to take the time to work through these passages. We want to glean everything that God has for us and um, and, and to make certain that we're understanding the text. And so we'll make an effort to do that today. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the time together. Thank you for uh, a time to sing and to laugh and to fellowship with each other. Um, thank you for the time that um, you have given us to set aside, uh, to begin each week, to be um, uh, initiated into the week, if you will, by being reminded of the treasure that we have in Jesus Christ. Um, We are people who are overcome and overwhelmed by the magnitude and wonder of the grace and mercy that you have extended to us by and through the work and person of Jesus Christ. And may our hearts, Lord, truly be kindled afresh today and our love for Christ increase. May we leave here today greater lovers of Christ than when we came. And and may that love for Him be the reason that we live for Him and serve Him, knowing full well that all that we ever have needed has been fully accomplished by Jesus Christ, that you have accepted His work on our behalf, and that we stand justified before you because of Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Help us to comprehend and understand your word today. Um, Help us to take the information that it contains and to treasure it. Um, It is certainly precious and valuable to us, and thank you for graciously preserving it for all of these ages so we can have it today. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Colossians chapter 3 a passage now that has become quite familiar to us in regards to um, its, its content and its words. And so beginning with verse 1, Colossians 3, 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set or fix your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also 
put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Well, the, the, the focus here for Paul is one connected to our union with Jesus Christ. We've been talking about the significance of that idea, that doctrinal position in Scripture that correlates or communicates rather to us the significance of the fact that we have been united with Jesus Christ. As a consequence of that, we have a new identity, a new capacity, a new ability, a new will to do the things that are pleasing to the Lord. And so, Uh, What Paul is doing for us is emphasizing our new identity and how we live in the reality of our union with Christ. So for Paul, this is not about becoming more saved or getting saved or being saved in the context of how salvation works. It is the consequence of salvation. This is what happens when God saves somebody. He changes them. In order to be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. That's what Christ told Nicodemus as Nicodemus came to him at night. And then Christ would explain to Nicodemus the significance of what that meant, communicating clearly to him that salvation is a work of God, that there is a transformation, a regeneration that takes place, that one is made different from what they were before they were saved. And so for Paul... He wants the reality of that to be demonstrated in the behavior of the Christians in Colossae. He clearly has the distinction between the law and the gospel down. He is not, he's not blending the law into the gospel. He's not making it the gospel as so many people do today, robbing people of their joy and rest and assurance in Jesus Christ, but rather he is talking about the fact that salvation has consequences. When God spoke the world into existence, it came into existence, and it functioned in a particular way as designed by God, the Creator. And so, too, when God saves someone, dead in their trespasses and sins, gives them life, and He gives them the ability then to live out the consequences of that new life. And so, We want to be attentive to this important and foundational truth in Scripture. Getting this right is so significant, and it's where so many people get it wrong, and it robs people of joy, and it robs people of their strength, and it robs people of their commitment to Christ because they keep measuring everything based upon their own subjective responses rather than resting in the finished work of Christ and knowing that they have been equipped to do those things that please the Lord. Ultimately, Paul knows that the more you know about Jesus Christ, the more you will want to live for him. Charles Spurgeon said this, he who does not long to know more of Christ knows nothing of him yet. That's significant. If you do not long to know more of Christ, that begs the question if you know him at all. And that's what good old Chuck's point was for us. And so rather than serving Christ grudgingly, we serve him with Gratitude. We've talked about the idea of a gospel gratitude, that gratitude that is driven by an appreciation for the magnitude and wonder of God's transforming grace in our lives. We're then driven by His grace to serve Him gladly. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Our gratitude is demonstrated by a change in the patterns of our behavior. 
both in terms of our individual and relational sins. This is what Paul's point is here. We see in verse 5 that Paul, building upon the doctrinal foundations found in verses 1 through 4, says that the consequences of that is that you will then mortify, you will then put to death certain sins within your life. In, these particular, in this particular instance, he's speaking to issues related to sexual immorality primarily, But he's also dealing with that root sin, that cause of all of these things, which is greed. Greed is what drives people into the context of these types of activities that Paul defines for us and that we went through previously. And so in verse 5, Paul reminds us that we are, in light of the reality of verses 1 through 4, to mortify our sin, to put it to death, to hack it to pieces, if you will, to always be killing sin, as John Owen said, or it will be killing you. And so we are no longer sons of disobedience, but rather children of light who lovingly live for Christ, thus demonstrating the genuineness of our conversion. Consequently, if we we know people or if we in our own lives see patterns that are more permanent in nature than than temporary um, missteps, if you will, knowing that, that We are not sinless. We do not reach perfection. But if the pattern of our lives, if the conduct of our life has been to be engaged in a habit of sin, a pattern of sin, then that begs the question as to whether or not we genuinely know the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 2 of the false teachers that they revel in their sin, that they lead people astray in their sin, that their life is marked by a pattern of consistent engagement in sin. And because of that, we can know that they are false, that they are not genuine, that they are not on the right way. And so Paul here too wants to make certain that these Colossi believers are remembering who they are in Jesus Christ, the fact that they have been delivered and given a reprieve from God's wrath. We know that from verse 6. It says, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. That's who you once were. But now we know what? We are to put these things aside. We know that we once lived in them. They were the pattern of our life. That was the way that we walked. Our mindset was bent upon these things. But by God, but God by His grace has saved us, delivering us from the dominion and power of sin. So now we can say no to sin, and we want to say no to sin, and we want to live for Christ because of what He has done for us. That's what our new identity and capacity in Christ does for us. And so Paul, to tease out this issue and to drive us to a place of, of joy um, and, and, and living for Christ, uses this once-but-now kind of motif, the idea of, of contrasting. This is what you once were, but now you are this, which is so important for us. The reminder of that serves as a basis for our joy. It gives us a a picture of the magnificence and the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It gives us a sense of what God has done. We can go back and we can see and we can be reminded of the fact that we were once like that 
that we were captured in that condition, that we were truly children of the curse, that we were the sons and daughter of Adam, but then we have been saved, we have been rescued, Colossians 1.13, from the domain of darkness, brought over into this wonderful realm and kingdom of light, ruled and governed by Jesus Christ. So using this once-but-now picture, it's a contrast that compels us to praise Jesus Christ and compels us to do something else, to put aside certain relational behaviors that manifest the reality of what Paul refers to in verse 10 as putting on the new self. Now, this is not a picture of you saving yourself. It's a picture of you living out the consequences of the reality of your conversion. If we're going to talk about conversion therapy, then I'm going to give you a little therapy this morning. My therapy is that live like a Christian because you are. And you can. And you ought to want to. And that's something else that's significant. By contrasting who we once were, there's this sense in which Paul is reminding us of the dire consequences, the the perilous position that we were in when we were once that group of people. Now, this is important. Now, you may say to me, but Pastor John, I I really can't find myself in verse 5. I I really can't, I can't find the, I've been in church since I can remember. I I, I was born on on Saturday. I was in church on Sunday morning, uh, for Pete's sake. I, I, I don't even know where to go to do some of these things. I what, what about me? Where's my joy at? Well, here it is for you. You get to look at these passages and you are reminded of the dire consequences of sin and that the seed of every sin is in the heart of every man. And it's because of that that I can too rejoice that even though I may not find myself in a graphic detail within the passages, that I too am a sinner saved by grace through the work and person of Jesus Christ. But by the grace of God, there go I. You have been spared the consequences of all these sins. Now, you can rejoice over that. That is a great source of joy and contentment. Isn't it wonderful that you grew up in a Christian home? Isn't it wonderful that your mom and dad taught you the gospel at a young age and that they took you to church and you had teachers and pastors and other people in your life who gave you Jesus Christ and that God at a young age saved you and spared you from being engaged in these type of things? And you can sit down and look at this list and say, praise be to God, I know that I could do those things and I have Jesus Christ and that even if I do them, I can be forgiven because Jesus Christ never did them for me. This is the reminder that Paul gives to us and it's so important that our motivation is based upon a joyful contentment in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so for Paul, he wants us to be engaged in a behavior that reflects the reality of our conversion. We see, in verse, we see here in verses 5 and 8, the reality of a saving faith that results in a genuine repentance, a true change of heart toward God, a turning around, changing one's mind about, about sin and Christ, relenting from a former way or walk of life, a possessing of the treasure of our salvation is ultimately what we're seeing here. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, speaking to the issue of repentance, said this, and pay attention to his words, repentance is necessary in every case. Now, he's not, what what Spurgeon is saying there is significant, and, and for Paul too, 
he's driving home the point that the consequence of our salvation is an attitude of repentance that demonstrates the reality of our conversion. So when Spurgeon says repentance is necessary, he's not saying it's necessary to be saved, but it's necessary to demonstrate the reality of your conversion. Do you see the distinction here? So for example, we have to be careful about this. Is repentance the gospel? No. Why not? Why isn't repentance the gospel? What's repentance about? Who is it? It's about you, right? And so if I say to you all the time, repent, 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 your question is going to be, how much repentance does it take to get saved? Well, I don't know. Just keep repenting. (laughs) I want to keep you repenting because if you think you've got to be repenting all the time, you'll keep coming. Hoping that I'm going to tell you when to stop. (laughs) No, and that's, that's, that's where you mix the law and the gospel. So, so we end up, we want to make certain that that distinction is maintained. Repentance comes out of the consequences of my conversion, of my salvation. It's important that we understand what that means. So when Spurgeon says repentance is necessary in every case, he's saying that because that's what salvation creates in us, an attitude of repentance. He goes on to say, there must be this radical change which shall make you loathe what you once loved and love what you once loathed. I like that. There must be this radical change which shall make you loathe what you once loved and love what you once loathed. Remember, let's be reminded of that Go back with me to Colossians chapter 1, just for a moment. Colossians 1, verse 21. Understanding from verse 20 that Christ was reconciling all things to himself, including you, that peace has been made through his blood on the cross, and that reconciliation is necessary because in verse 21 it says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You're in Christ. That's that picture of positional sanctification, if you will, um, as we know so well from studying the books we've been working through in the theology classes. And so in verse 21, this is what you're being reminded of. You were once before alienated and hostile in mind. And so keeping that in mind, we we know now that we are not that way. And as a consequence, then do the things that are pleasing to the Lord. So wherever there is real forgiveness of sin, there will be real sorrow on account of it. A Christian does not want to remain in sin. A Christian does not want to engage in or be embraced by or be identified by their sin. Now, listen to me. We have so many people today in this new era of deconstructing who are saying that Christians ought to be identified by their sin, that it's okay to be known by your sin. Well, that's quite preposterous, and we know that to be the case. And we'll look at that more in detail here in a moment. So, we must make certain that we're understanding the power and the position that we're in as the redeemed of God. 
2 Peter chapter 1, Peter would remind us that we are partakers of the divine nature. And, and building on that theme, he moves those believers, those dispersed Christians to the outer realms of the Roman Empire to be engaged in a demonstration of the reality of that by the conduct of their lives. He then lists out seven Christian virtues in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7 that ought to be evident in the Christian life and said, and even increasing, he says, if these are yours and are increasing. What is the increase based upon? The increase for Peter is based upon the truths that are contained in verses 1 through 4 of 2 Peter 1, which talks about the magnitude and wonder of your salvation. And as you grow in an understanding of Jesus Christ, it is going to be axiomatic. It is going to be a natural consequence that the virtues that are attendant with the life of the redeemed will increase. Love, self-control, godliness, gentleness, kindness, the fruits of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5. And so, for Paul, this is just the natural consequences of being saved. So, for Paul, mortification not only entails killing sin, but also changing our behavior. 1 Corinthians 6.11, such were some of you, after he lists out a whole list of sins that are quite remarkable. He says, such were some of you. He doesn't say, some of you still are. <laughs> he does that when he goes to, Corinthian, to Corinth. So what is important to note here is that Paul is not teaching that which is so prevalent in today's presentation of the gospel Namely, that the gospel is that God accepts people as they are. That belief leads to what we see today in the various heresies that are permeating the church, monikers that are antithetical to the entirety of Scripture, gay Christians, all of this nonsense that is being adopted is completely antithetical to what Paul is saying here. If you're doing what Paul says here in Colossians 3, then you will have, and if you have an understanding of what he is saying, you will not have any desire whatsoever to identify yourself in that capacity or in that context. We have this permeating the church. We have it deconstructing the truths of Scripture. This idea that God accepts people as they are, that we can just live however we want, was exactly what Paul was concerned about in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, where he talks about the fact that people were saying, I'm going to live in however I want, that grace may more abound. And Paul says, never, that, that can't be. May it never be. This attitude serves as the basis for the, uh, the trendy bands that we see today, the trending bands, rather, on conversion therapy. Um, as we see in Canada and even in, in good old homely Indiana, who'd have thunk it? But the new progressive gospel involves no change, no curing of sinful hearts, no suppression or mortification of sin within us. Instead, we are encouraged to revel in our sin, to embrace it and be known by it. Significantly, the progressive Christianity of our day is nothing more than a regression to the very same pagan Gnosticism Paul is condemning here in Colossians and that which Peter calls out in 2 Peter chapter 2. It's the very same stuff. 
Paul here in verse 8 is again noting that the gospel brings about a radical change and a resulting repentance and holy living. And holy living. Turn with me to 2 Peter. It, it behooves reading in 2 Peter to be reminded of the language. Second Peter chapter 1, let's just begin with verse 1. Let's read, let's read down through verse 11. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Again, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received, now think, those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. That word receive there, it, it carries with it the idea that that which is received by lot. It's, a, it's like it's by God's direction in the context of our salvation. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us, so there's a right way and a wrong way to know about Jesus Christ, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust." Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence. In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you." That, that passage is so significant and so important for us. Be all the more certain or more diligent to make certain, verse 10, about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Peter there is saying that the demonstration of the genuineness of your conversion, the fact that God elected you, chose you for salvation, is the fact that this life that you live is marked by these virtues by these markers of holiness, if you will, because it's in our DNA. It will be the natural consequence of a Christian to live out the reality of that conversion. That's what he's saying. That's what Paul is saying. So when he gets to verse 8, so go back to Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, let's not forget about the doctrine of election. I'm not afraid to talk about election. I love election. I think it's a wonderful doctrine, and too many pastors run from it because people get upset about it. Well, get over yourself and understand what God's Word says. It's important for us to be reminded of the fact that God chose for Himself a people before the foundation of the world that He would set apart, making them uniquely identifiable as His own. To Nicodemus, he would say what? You must be born again. 
Nicodemus wanted into the kingdom. How do I get into the kingdom? You must be born again. What does Christ then tell Nicodemus? Try hard, work hard, use your free will? No, he explains to him in verse 8 that one's salvation is dependent upon the working of the Holy Spirit. He blows like the wind blows. He comes and goes. We don't know how that works necessarily, but he does the work. There's a work that has to be done. Regeneration, new life has to be given. And so when Paul says to me in verse 8, but now you also, who's the you also? He's emphasizing the fact that he's writing, he's talking to Christians. He's expecting them. He's indeed anticipating that the reality of what he is speaking about will be evident in their lives. The conduct will demonstrate the reality of their election, the reality of God saving them. So that's why he says what he does. He's not asking them to do the impossible. He's not asking them, he's not putting before them an idea that is mind-blowing to them in the context of, I can't ever do that. No, he's saying to them, in your new identity, in your new capacity, as the chosen of God, you put these things aside. You want to. That's the consequences of it. And so, he, in verse 8, he's noting that the gospel brings about a radical change, resulting in repentance and holy living, as we just read. So when we hear people telling us that Christians can be involved in all sorts of types of, of known, quantifiable, marked out sins in Scripture and still be part of the kingdom of Christ, they're lying to you. And when they, don't, when they don't engage other people on the basis of what Scripture says about those things, then they are leading those people astray. It is not loving to not talk to those people about the error of their way. If you see someone put their hand in the fire, you're going to tell them to take it out, right? Of course you are. But today we have a form of Christianity where we can't offend anybody, we can't say anything that's going to upset anybody, we're going to get canceled if we do. Okay, cancel. I just don't want to be canceled by God. That's eternal. Look at, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you something. This is, this is really amazing. Turn with me to Acts. Look at Acts, chapter 19. Now, now again, you're not doing these things. Sanctification, first of all, every work I ever had to do was completely fulfilled by Jesus Christ. I'm resting in his finished work. Remember, it's finished, right? His work is done. On the cross, it said, he said what? It is finished. God had accepted everything that he had done. That meant the life he lived was perfect. For me. So I'm not adding anything to it. When I do the Christian virtues, when I engage in those behaviors, I am not making myself more saved or more appealing to God. I can't be any more appealing to him. Remember Colossians 1, 21 and 22? I have been reconciled. The language there in the Greek is in the past tense. It's already done. Okay, friends? Now think about it for a minute. It's finished. You're just simply living the Christian life in the reality of the context of being accepted by God the Father in Jesus Christ. You're so happy about it, you can't do anything but live for him. 
That's the point. Now look what happens in Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 19. I love this. Now, we understand what's happening. Paul's in Ephesus. We've got a big issue going on in Ephesus. There's a lot of tension because Paul shows up, starts teaching the gospel. People are getting saved. And it's having a radical impact upon the economy and upon the whole culture of the city. It's a big deal. Look at this. Let's start with verse 17. Um, this became known to all. So this, this demon had been cast out and, and this, this fact had become known. Verse 17, this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Look at verse 18. Many also of those who had believed kept coming. Now, now look. Let's, 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 let's identify who the people are. Context is so important. So, Paul is where? In Ephesus. Let's do this. Let's have a lesson in hermeneutics. Let's step back for a minute. What is the book of Acts about? The book of Acts is about the beginnings of the church after Christ's ascension. So, we're now building the New Testament church in the book of Acts. We're seeing a remarkable, powerful demonstration of the Holy Spirit, Paul and the other apostles are traveling around. They're preaching and proclaiming Christ and him crucified. Okay? That's what he's doing in Ephesus. In fact, Epaphras would get saved in Ephesus and go back to Colossae and start a church. So look what happens in verse 18. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practice magic, now this magic isn't card tricks. They weren't just really good at shuffling cards and, and making things disappear in their hands. They were engaged in the dark arts, black magic, spiritism, demonic activity. It was bad stuff. And it was very prevalent, very prevalent. These are pagan people. They had been engaged in pagan religions, worshiping pagan deities, engaged in all sorts of things that would terrify you, frankly, if you were exposed to them. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. I did some research on that. In today's dollars, if it was a denarii piece of silver, that would be worth $6.5 million today. If it was a talent of silver, which many believe it was, which is a little block of silver, $1.5 billion in value today. Why did they do that? Did they do it to become more saved? Did they do it to garner favor with God? Did they do it to be, to be liked by the Apostle Paul? No, they did it because God had saved them. He had changed them. He had transformed them from a black arts magician into a trophy of grace. And as a consequence of that, they brought these things. It says in verse 18 that many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing. That is to, to praise God, to proclaim that I used to do this. This is the practice that I was engaged in. They were giving their testimonies and saying, praise God, I'm no longer involved in that. And to show the fact that it was true and that they fully comprehended the magnitude and wickedness of what they had been doing, they took what they had and they got rid of it. They didn't sell it, they destroyed it. 
They didn't even put it on eBay. They kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. They didn't become black magic Christians. They didn't continue in the sin from which God had saved them. Isn't that remarkable? They didn't identify themselves as as magic Christians or magician Christians or demonic Christians. No, they, they saw themselves as new creation in Christ Jesus. And they came and they burnt their magic potions and dark art books because they had a new identity in Jesus Christ. They were overwhelmed by the magnitude of their salvation and the wonders of his grace and the power of the gospel. And verse 20 tells us what happened. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. That's a beautiful picture for us. Contrary to the heresy of the Gnostics and progressive Christianity of today, Paul did not celebrate the sin of the Ephesian magicians. He didn't let them to continue to identify themselves, and indeed, he would not have allowed that. And rather, what he did is he told them about Jesus Christ. He told them about their desperate need of a Savior. And God, through the power of the preaching of the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit, saved them and change them. There's a consequence, dear friends, to conversion. It's real. We have, been, we have bought into the secular lie that there is no difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. We have been so co-opted by the world that we've lost our own identity. Everything is about identity today except if you're a Christian. You don't do anything, you don't mean anything, and you don't stand for anything. What's, what's going on? Now, keep in mind, too, that we know from the book of Acts that the consequence of Paul's preaching in Ephesus turned the city on its head. There was a revolt. There were riots. There were big assemblies of people. What are we going to do with Paul and all these Christians? They're killing our marketplace. We can't make, no one's buying idols. They're, They're burning their magician books. What's going on? No, these Christians were known. Paul was known. Indeed, Paul would have to exercise his rights as a Roman citizen to escape the mob. They were going to kill him until he said to the one guy, the, 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 the soldier, oh, by the way, um, I'm a Roman citizen. Uh, gulp. Uh, I can't do that to you then. We can't let the mob kill you. So, friends, we can't buy into this idea that our conversion doesn't mean anything. Being a Christian means something. And for Paul, that is incredibly important. He wants, he wants these people to understand that. So let's go back to Colossians. And I covered up my watch again. That's a dangerous thing to do. It's always hard to preach on a Sunday when there's the aroma of delicious food wafting about. <laughs> If it were fried chicken, you would all be comatose and passed out, (laughs) being the secret Baptist that you are. So, Paul, verse 8, now think about it for a minute. So, think think about the book of Acts. 
Think about what goes on in Acts chapter 19 and the verses we just read. This is just the consequence. This is the doctrine that undergirds the action of Acts 19 in the context of these particular sins that Paul is dealing with. These people may not be dark arts magicians, but they're people who apparently have problems with anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Most of us, (laughs) then. We can perhaps, if we're going to use the language of the modern age, identify more with this passage. I don't know that we have any dark arts magicians in the congregation. If we do, we need to talk. But now you also, he says... So there's that once-but-now motif, that picture of, of the change. You once were this, but now you're this. And because you're this, you can now do this, and you want to do this. So you do something, but now you also, that, that little phrase there, you also, is important. It's in the Greek, there's an emphasis to it grammatically. There's like a punch with it. It's like, Paul is, it's like Paul's kind of grabbing him by the collar and shaking him a little bit, but now you also. Pay attention. Look up. Think about it for a minute, folks. That's what he's doing. With, there's, a, there's a punch to this. But now you also put them all aside. Don't give them any quarter. Mortify them. Put them to death. Remember, the picture of mortification is hacking something to death. Remember I told you about the rat I found in the chicken coop? I couldn't kill the thing. It took me all afternoon to kill him, but I kept working on it until he finally died but I had to keep doing it. Now, at one point in time, I kind of walked away thinking he was dead. I went back like a half an hour later. He had drugged the trap halfway across the drive. I had to go back and keep hacking at him. That's how sin works. And so this is what's happening here too. Put them all aside. Now, Paul here uses this really cool, this really unique picture of of taking one's clothes off, of, of disrobing of taking off dirty, something that's dirty and soiled and torn and worn and taking that off and putting something else on. That would have been a big deal for these folks in terms of a picture, a metaphor, because clothing was, well, I mean, it's not like our closets where you've got clothes you've forgotten about. People typically had only one thing to wear. And, and if, 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 and if by some way, God's good providence, they may have had a robe that people would inherit. Oh, dad died. Oh, well, I'm sorry about dad, but I could use a robe. <laughs> That's what happens. People would inherit their parents' robe. That was a big deal. So, so Paul here, he's, he's saying to them, you need to take, you, you, just like you take off those dirty clothes and discard them, that's what we're doing with these practices and behaviors. We're going, they're filthy, they're, they're putrefied, they're, they're stinky, they're, they're yucky. So you take them off. And so this would have been dramatic because clothing was incredibly valuable to people. And the picture would have been very vivid in their minds. Taking off these filthy, dirty clothes. And you and I can't even imagine the filth of these clothes. Paul is drawing a mental picture for them of the fact that the way they used to be is like their dirty, filthy clothing. And who would want to keep on dirty, 
filthy clothing when you've been given a brand new suit of clothes. It doesn't make any sense, does it? So, so for, for, for these people hearing this, that picture would have been very impactful. So when Paul says in verse 8, but now you also take off those old, dirty, sinful clothes. Take off those old, dirty, sinful habits. You're no longer bound to them. You don't have to keep those dirty clothes on anymore. You've got a brand new pair of Levi's and Nike shoes and a t-shirt. Put them on. Put them on. Now, when he said to put them on, he's not emphasizing that in the context of a work of righteousness. He's speaking to an ability, an opportunity, indeed the privilege of now doing something that is the consequence of this radical conversion that they've been given by God through Christ. And, and they would know then, too, the reality of that is that they're simply putting on new clothes as a marker of the reality of their conversion, not so they can do more work and harder work to keep being saved or be saved. These aren't new work clothes. They're new resting clothes. They're resting in Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? Friends, do you understand the significance and the consequence of the fact that you're not working for your salvation? I mean it. Do you know that? I always ask you this. Do you know him? That question teases out whether or not your rest is in your own work or in the finished work of Jesus Christ. When Paul said, take off those dirty clothes, he was speaking to them of the reality of the consequence of the radical transformation wrought by God in them through Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful thing. Do you know him? Do you genuinely know Jesus Christ in the context of not looking at yourself? Here, let's do it this way. Okay, fine, pastor, I got new clothes. I put them on. I'm going to faith in the fact that I put them on. I'm going to faith in my faithfulness. Got the clothes on. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. Uh Uh-uh. That's still not faith. That's faith in yourself. That's not faith in Christ. The con- my new clothing simply reflects my new, that I'm possessed by something new, that I've been given this by someone else. The reality of my conversion is demonstrated by the fact that I've now been put in this position. I have been given this. I am not faithing in my faithfulness. I'm not faithing in the new clothes. I'm faithing in the one who gave them to me and equipped me to live for him. I'm faithing in the fact that he never engaged in the things that are listed in in Ephesians or in Colossians 3, 5, and 8. That he wasn't angry and and bitter and, and backstabbing and a slanderer. We'll talk about that more in a in a little while next week, Lord willing. But for me, for you, I want you to understand the reality of what Paul is speaking to here. The consequences of a rest that you get to have in Jesus Christ. Put them aside. 
take them off. Rest in Christ. The consequence of that is what? Well, I control my anger, my wrath, my malice, my tongue, my heart change impacts my outward conduct for Christ. Well, we're out of time, and I know you're hungry, and so we will wrap it up here. We'll pick up next time, Lord willing, in the balance of verse 8, move into verse 9, and I hope that you do know Jesus Christ, and I hope that you are truly resting in His finished work, not faithing in your faithfulness, but looking to Jesus Christ alone. If you don't know Him, here's the good news. It's not a trick. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You've heard the word of God today. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will open your heart to understand and comprehend and that you will turn to Christ and look to him and cry out to him, save me, thou son of David. Have mercy on me. That's all there is to it. It's a wonderful, simple message. So very simple. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the transformative work of of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Help us to understand the reality of what has taken place. Thank you for these beautiful pictures that are painted for us in Scripture of all that you've done for us in Christ. Bless our time of fellowship. Thank you for the food uh, that you have so graciously provided to us, the bounty before us. Thank you for those who have taken the time to prepare it. Bless and keep us, we pray, in the name of Christ. And bring us together again, we pray, according to your goodwill and mercy in the next week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.